Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Vertical Space, a podcast at the intersection of technology and flight. We are your hosts, Jim Barry and Luka Tomjanovic, and here we look at the most important forces shaping the market of advanced air mobility, with a particular focus on why and how they matter to those building a business in this very exciting and growing industry. A greenfield manufacturing facility that can achieve that rate for, for EV tolls and have the digitization and automation that we've been talking about is going to run you somewhere between 700 million and a billion. Today, we're talking to Scott Drennan, a friend and aerospace innovator who's been at the bleeding edge of mostly rotorcraft aerospace engineering for almost three decades. He has been working on various VTOL aircraft and concepts like the tilt rotor long before most people even knew what those terms mean. So when we first talked to Scott about being on the podcast, we thought it would be an interesting idea to talk about the DC-3 moment or the Model T moment for advanced air mobility. And for those that are not too familiar with the DC-3 and its impact on aviation, this legendary airplane really marked a milestone for the airline industry a combination of new technologies and greater familiarity with the passenger transport use case enabled radical improvements in passenger experience and operating costs for airlines, effectively making it the first aircraft to enable the closing of the business case for airlines. So the natural question is, what will create this DC-3 moment for advanced air mobility? What technologies and experiences need to come together for this to happen? So Scott had some interesting views on this. Among other things, you'll also hear about the similarities and differences between automotive and aviation production standards and practices, timelines and capital needed to achieve high production rates in aerospace, best practices for leveraging advanced manufacturing and digital engineering. And as we always do on this podcast, we ask Scott for his advice to entrepreneurs looking to start a business in this next chapter of aviation. So without further ado, enjoy the conversation with Scott. This episode of the Vertical Space Podcast is brought to you by UAvionics. UAvionics is the leader in low-size, weight, and power certified avionics for manned, unmanned, and advanced air mobility aircraft. Let UAvionics help you achieve your goals, whether that be type certification, airspace access, or beyond visual line-of-sight operations. UAvionics has certified and certifiable communications, navigation, and surveillance avionics for your aircraft. So head over to uavionics.com or Google it to see how you can start flying safer and move your platform forward into shared airspace. We're so happy to have Scott Drennan on the show today. Scott is the founder and CEO of Drennan Innovation, where he advises clients in aerospace and advanced air mobility on how to solve challenges around designing, developing, and deploying complex systems of systems. Scott is deeply rooted in aerospace and defense, uh, where he has been innovating and leading for almost 30 years now. He started at Bell Helicopter, and his most recent role there has been as Vice President of Innovation and Advanced Concepts, where he developed advanced technologies, both legacy and future military and commercial platforms. Before founding Drennan Innovation, Scott was the Chief Research and Development Officer of Hyundai's Genesis Air Mobility Division. Scott is also a sought-after advisor. Some of the companies that are lucky enough to call him advisor are Electric Power Systems, Elroy Air, Near Earth Autonomy, and he's also advising an aerospace SPAC called New Vista SPAC. 
And of course, let's not forget his role as a member of the NASA Advisory Council Aeronautics Committee. Very impressive background, Scott. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, it's really great to be here, Luca. I, I enjoy talking to you about this topic and uh, it should be a great uh, conversation. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. So one thing that jumped out, I really liked the tagline for Drennan Innovation, and it says, the future is behind us. What do you mean by that? Well, it's, uh, it has two meanings for me. Uh, in, it's the sense that uh, because we're looking at stuff in the future, the future believes in us and is behind us like a, like a friend would be, like a supporter would be. And then also it's a play on words of, well, we're ahead of the future itself. So um, I use it in those two senses. I like that. I like that a lot. All right. Yeah. Uh, so let's jump into our discussion. So today, the topic at a very high level is the DC3 moment and the Model T moment for advanced air mobility. And we we have uh, uh, quite a few interesting questions around the topic. But before we go there, Scott, is there anything that very few in the industry agree with you on? Well, I usually get in most of my disagreements around redundancy and reliability. As, mm -hmm. as you might know, one of the big principles, one of the big technology principles of advanced air mobility, especially in VTOL, is distributed electric propulsion. So now instead of one big rotor, we have many uh, rotors. And I get worried often that people mistake redundancy and reliability. Redundancy is a tool with which to reach reliability. And reliability stands on its own as the goal that we need in our designs in order to make it safe for, for people to fly in or for it to operate uh, in our airspace and, and, and these different environments. So I think that's one that... Um, that uh, I get in a lot of disagreements about. Uh, I find that when people use redundancy in the wrong way, it, it kind of relaxes them a little bit and it, it uh, prevents them to looking at the parts in that system that albeit has redundancy that may not be reliable enough to support the uh, probability of failure claims that they're making or mm -hmm. even ignores some failure modes you know one of the temptations with electrification is well i've got a bunch of motors and and when they fail they just turn off and it's uh, it's a benign failure mode well there's all kinds of other failure modes that could occur from that motor up to the rotor system or even even below. So I think that's probably my like, disagreement point. I've been trying to build uh, on it a little bit to figure out why I have those conversations with folks. And another concept that I've been poking around on lately is the difference between or the perception uh, between complexity and criticality. Mm -hmm. I think that may have something to do with it. When folks look at older systems, especially in VTOL, they see the, the critical parts like the hub, uh, maybe the transmission, maybe a single engine, and they automatically relate that criticality to complexity when oftentimes the individual components in those uh, assemblies aren't really that complex, like a swash plate. Everyone thinks it's complex. It's really not. It's just a really simple uh, mechanical sine wave generator, but it is critical because if it fails, uh, the, the uh, vehicle won't work for sure. I wonder if that's the confusion that, that people get into sometimes where they, they relate those two together and then it mixes them up on what they have to do in terms of 
reliability versus redundancy. Does this discussion gain increasing relevance with special condition VTOL and some of the discussions around you know, achieving simplicity at the same time, but also very high levels of safety? Yeah, I think that that drives it, right? And and folks, you know, that, that special condition, it really pushes you towards, well, you need to have a failure of, you know, one of the parts in the system, and then you have to have 10 to the minus ninth probability of failure in the next slot down. And that right away gives people difficulty in in determining what what that redundancy is really doing with them. I think it it'll keep getting um, more and more relevant as more folks apply for certification and start to have to write out their means of compliance and, and mm-hmm. certification base versus those uh, those special conditions. That's the you know, European, uh, you're re- referring the, to the European approach. I am. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, I think the FAA is working at individual levels uh, and understanding the systems with the applicants, but um, it'll, it'll soon converge and, and, and drive to a similar place. So it's really, really important to understand what it does for you. And it's not just a safety thing. You, you notice from some of my designs and we weren't afraid to use um, six uh, propulsion units or even four. And that was because as we were trading out the cost of redundancy, whether that was uh, real cost in dollars to have that many systems or real cost in weight to have that many systems, we discovered that handling reliability at the appropriate level, up in the rotors, up in the mast, you could get to a lighter system and still have the redundancy that you might need below, say in the mo- number of motors in the electrical bus fly-by-wire system. So I think there's some room there to to optimize, and it's usually the spot where we, we disagree. I have a secret one too. Where <laughs> All right, let's hear it. <laughs> I, you know, I know noise is really important for the EV tall and uh, section of advanced air mobility, and it seems to be important even in some of the fixed wing applications. But I often wonder, and again, I wonder mostly secretly on this one because I do support the effort to keep the aircraft quiet. But I wonder if you know one one city gains uh, a, a great uh, urban air mobility system, and say it's a city in the developing world that may not have the same perspective on noise as we do. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we in San Francisco or in New York or, you know, pick your favorite city in America, we look across and see that, oh, that developing nation has urban air mobility and they're getting better performance than we do. It's a, a little um, louder, but is it worth it? Might we not have it as well if we just relaxed some of those requirements? Mm-hmm. And again, it's a slippery it's a slippery slope because how far do you go? But the the idea revolves around different opinions about noise, different responses to noise in different places around the world or different cultures and right. kind of playing this uh, mental game of of well, if it started off in a place that didn't mind it as much, wouldn't everybody else be jealous and learn how to tolerate it in the same way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it'll, it'll be interesting to come back to this particular angle of the discussion once we put our entrepreneurial hats on. Sure. Uh, because we do see a lot of startups go out and build their business abroad outside of 
of the US and Europe, mm -hmm. uh, where the risk reward is so much different to your point. Uh, some of the sensitivities might not be the same. So one thing that that I think would be interesting to talk about is, is this DC3 moment for advanced air mobility. If yeah. we turn the clock way back, prior to the DC3, commercial air travel was really uncomfortable for passengers, not really profitable to airlines. Then the DC-3 came in, which was an improvement over the DC-2, obviously, and featured a, a number of technolo technologies that offered a much better experience to the passengers from you know, lower noise, more comfortable cabin, much more uh, stable ride, fewer stops on coast-to-coast -coast flights, et cetera. And for, for the airlines, it made it possible to run a profitable business without the need for government subsidies. So if we if we take that as a as a milestone in the traditional manned aviation, what will be necessary to recreate this DC three moment for EV tolls or yeah. broadly advanced air mobility drones and, and and EV tolls? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting theme that you picked. It's a little bit different than than some of the conversations around the focus on the propulsion system. So. Rather than, you know, the DC-3, a lot of folks talk about the jet age. So, you know, 707s and they relate it to electric propulsion. But I, I find it really interesting that you picked this one. And I'd love to talk about the Model T part of it, too, because I think there's two, two or three different things going on. But on the DC-3, as you mentioned, those two, two big categories were comfort and really cost. I think it's evident to everyone that that cost has to be a factor in the explosion of, of EV tolls, urban air mobility, advanced air mobility, in order for it to really scale properly and allow us to use the tools that we can uh, use in manufacturing at scale, in supply chain at scale, to, to really unlock it for day-to-day -day use. And I think that was the big, that that's the moment, right? So the DC3 moment is when those operating costs reached a point where the airlines could pass it on to regular people to, to get on board and experience a fundamental change in their mobility options. And so I think we have the same same challenge. And so what are those technologies that, that will recreate this moment? Do Are all of them available today or where are the gaps? Yeah, I think I think they are. I mean, my analysis of the electric components for the E and EV tall is is really what drives uh, and also aviation for that matter is really what drives those costs out. So when you look at the maintenance and upkeep costs of the electrical propulsion systems, they are much more economical than our typical turbine-based systems, gas-burning systems that we have today. They, they also are much easier manufactured as a, as a line-replaceable unit. Folks are even taking approaches of breaking up the components in the system and keeping your inverters and controllers separate from your motors, and that allows for more readily maintained and replaced pieces. So the numbers that, that we're seeing there, plus what would be the equivalent of the fuel cost, it would be electricity versus traditional fuel, uh, look like they're going to take 30 to 40% out of the operating cost of the vehicle. So I think that's a big technology that will help us with the cost. And I think that's there. I mean, I, I always want the the batteries to be lighter and um, the motors to be lighter. But I think we're in a space uh, right now where we can realize that 30 to 40% uh, cost reduction, as long as 
we are ready to live with the performance that you get from that. So, you know, we're not mm -hmm. talking about 600 miles anymore. We're talking about 60. Uh, we're not talking about 60 people. We're talking about, you know, six maybe, <laughs> probably right. less than that. And so you have to be willing to to live with that. But I think um, the the value that that people will gain by having a new mobility um, solution at those new costs is super important and super uh, attractive. The other technology, and this is the one where I think we need to be careful about saying it's there, is autonomy. Autonomy will be another driver in helping the cost go down because it takes that that cost seat, the pilot seat and turns it into a revenue seat. It's there as far as I can see from a technology standpoint, and we know there's autonomous vehicles operating in the military space, but it still has two growth trajectories that it needs to hit, and that is community acceptance or customer acceptance. Can I look left in the aircraft and not see a pilot and still feel comfortable? Can I live in a city and look up and see autonomous vehicles and still feel comfortable that they're not going to come down on us. And then the the other piece is, you know, certification of those autonomous systems. Can we get to that trusted, assured autonomy that the certification agencies can believe in and pass on that mm -hmm. message to the community that we are safe with that? So that'll be another another big one. There's subcategories, but I think those are the big categories. A subcategory I think about a lot uh, when I help my battery clients is the cost per cycle of the energy that's provided by battery system. And that's something that can easily be ignored because we're so worried about performance. We're so worried about having the lightest weight system and the system that's safe enough to contain thermal runaway. We forget that the economics will get us in trouble if we don't have a really good dollars per watt hour per cycle cost. Question on autonomy. What yeah. parts of advanced aeromobility do you believe will be autonomous, autonomous before the others? Yeah, I think there's, um, I think autonomy will start in remote applications first. So if you can come up with some use cases, and I'll, I'll name a couple mm -hmm. that are essentially what would be classified as remote operations, that is not above lots of people in, in crowded urban settings, and then um, those that don't involve people being on board, so the logistics mission. So we'll say, a, I think first is a remote logistics mm -hmm. mission, and that could be you know taking equipment out to, uh, or supplies out to oil rigs. It could be fighting fires in some of the remote wildfire regions. I think that's a great, uh, great use case or providing um, sensor support in those scenarios. So I think that's first. And then, you know, as another jump, I think next probably goes the the fixed wing aircraft that are operating from airports because you can you can control your your path to those airports and you know that you have a you know a fairly controlled space uh, from an airspace standpoint and an infrastructure standpoint that those autonomous vehicles can use and then i think after that you start to get into the more densely urban populated areas where ev tolls really want to make their make some hay and uh, those those come come in come in last. If you were a betting man. When would that be? Well, autonomy to me is kind of a plus five plus ten year proposition to certification. I think certification is probably longer than most think, given my experience in the space. So I'm more of a you know it's still 
still five years away for certification when you hear about other folks talking about two to three years away and then you probably need you need to add another five years onto that maybe even 10 for autonomous in those complex yeah. environments i'd like to go back to the the, the dc3 discussion yeah. and mm-hmm. a couple of things that came up as i was hearing your responses one was on the cost issue i think there's no doubt that there will be benefits on the operating cost and, and maintenance costs that will come at a w- with some sort of a curve uh, associated with it obviously and there will be a lot of upfront capital and cost that needs to be invested in ground infrastructure and in, in technology and new program developments do you think that that will ultimately ultimately be passed on to the customers, the passengers, in which case do we really have the DC3 moment where it doesn't really benefit the customer? Yeah, I think initially that that's going to have to happen unless the unless the communities and 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 public transportation kind of get behind it and say, look, this is this is good for us. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of saying this is going to relieve all the traffic burden. I think it will happen, but I'm a big fan of you know, productivity is lost in in traffic. We need to help uh, help our industries, help our communities, keep that productivity curve high. You know, get people there on time, get them to the places that they want to go to that are even outside of work, so they have a better quality of of life that then helps all the rest of the things. That's a good point. I also Um, think part of the success of the DC3 was a better understanding of the mission requirements. And I'm not sure we're there in terms of the AAM industry today. The first generation of of eVTOLs that we read about are just guesses on the the missions that people will will want to fly. And I think we need to go through a cycle of that first initial wave of use to then modify and and really converge on, on the mission aspect of the equation. Yeah, well, what happened in my experience, what happens with new technologies is just just like you described. I always use the example of the V22 and um, and soon to be the 609 and, and now the V280 in the Army. When we were first working on the V22, that's my first project when I started in, in aerospace, we always used to just say, well, it's, it, we know it's twice as far and twice as fast because the physics tells us that. And then when we were up in flight testing, we confirmed it. Well, we didn't know all the use cases, though, at the time. And until the mm-hmm. customer took the vehicles into their hands and started operating them and thinking about applications that were near and dear to their hearts, did we really nail down, oh, my gosh, this could refuel F-18s. Oh my gosh, this could, you know, be, there could be an attack variant. Um, This can change the entire battlefields concept of operations because you can put more people in a place in less time. And I think there'll be that moment for us in advanced air mobility as well. But I do, I do still believe that trying to come up with that, that first tranche of well, what's our range? What's our speed? What's our uh, carrying capacity? Is is really helpful because otherwise, you know, how do investors see what the business case is and understand that people are going to use the vehicle? When I see people that are out there saying it's you know sixty to uh, to a hundred miles with three to four people on board and it's all electric, then I'm I'm a believer. You know, some of the the ones that go beyond that right now, I don't. I don't see the technology supporting that. I think uh, there's a lot of creative use cases around uh, some of the smaller GE, uh, GEA aircraft right now. 
Uh, and I think that can help with training, that can help with the passionate users of those vehicles that, that fly them around today for, for some of their different activities. So I think there, there's, um, there's patience required because you speak the truth when you say, we'll learn more about it as we use it. That, that happens with new technology. I do think it's a responsibility of all the all the designers and the, and the folks working on this, on these programs to kind of lay down the what's really possible inside the bounds of the technological capabilities, inside the bounds of, of the regulatory bodies and their, their rules and say, this is where we're going to start. Well said. If we look at the EV tolls in particular, part of that business case, obviously, is being able to manufacture at large volumes. Yeah. Uh, what kind of volumes are we talking about and how does that compare to today's standards in aviation? Yeah. So I did a, did a little exercise the other day and kind of counted up the number of vehicles that um, all the EV toll folks that are spacking are putting down in their, their S1 reviews. And I roughly came up with 30,000 to 40,000 vehicles over a 10 year period as promised in those documents. So, um, you know, we're talking about thousands of vehicles per year relative to today's VTOL production rates. I think you're, you know, I used to always say you're cracking the champagne bottles open at 200 or 300 vehicles. <laughs> so there's a there's an order of magnitude shift. I think that's the that's what we're looking at in terms of you know relative output. So we're really approaching manufacturing uh, at automotive volumes and automotive speed. What's required to reach that level of production? It is good to it's good to talk about trending towards automobile rates, but those folks are in the millions even. So I think the you know out of the three scales, we can separate them by those orders of magnitude. But there's a lot to learn from the auto, automobile industry. And, you know, they use a lot of automation. Uh, we need to learn to do that um, on, a, well, I'll call it not a larger scale, but a, in a better way. I mean, we we today use things like automated tape layup, and that'll still be a part of it. But can we start to really use, I used to call it cellular um, manufacturing techniques, where we have machines that can do multiple tasks, because you're not looking for one machine to do one thing really well to produce a million parts a year. You're looking for machines that can, that can be, you know, staggered inside the the tack rate of the, of the manufacturing process that you're running around the, around the shop floor that you've designed and have those address different parts at uh, different moments in that uh, tack time so that you can get a nice flow rate out, out of the back at about that thousand thousand or so. I think one of the tricks that we have to use too is remember that there's a cost of quality in time and money. There's a cost of first pass yield. So we have to be careful selecting the level of materials correctly, the level of tooling correctly. We can't just say, oh, we have to go fast. So therefore we have to make less expensive tools and we have to use lesser capable materials because they're easy to manufacture. We have to be more creative and selective in each area. I mean, aerospace vehicles have, you know, primary structure, secondary structure, and even sometimes, you know, tertiary structure that right. can be handled in different ways. 
and can, um, if looked at it, through the lens of we got to do this faster, but still keep the right level of quality, we, we can accomplish that. And the, and the automotive folks can help us get there. On the topic of automation of assembly lines and production facilities, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the technology is there. What is the reason why it hasn't been adopted to that extent in, in aerospace today? Is it driven by regulation and certification or the demand yeah it's i mean there's a lot of capital cost that goes into making a a big factory like that that has all the automation before we get into that i'll tell you i'll tell you a quick story i used to go out with my um my teams and visit the the automotive folks because you, you know we'd look for partnerships of how to get a good blend of the aerospace and automotive manufacturing techniques And I'll never forget, you know, most of us in the group were enamored by the automotive industry's ability to stamp out these wonderful uh, unibody uh, uh, structures out of composite. And and we say, isn't that what we need? (laughs) And uh, everyone kind of shake their head and say, yeah, it's got to be. It's got to be. Well, my chief engineer would often pull me aside in that moment and, and whisper to me that every one of his engineers would die to make a aircraft structure that heavy. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so that was that was a checking point for, for me and everyone that we have to remember that the vehicles on the ground are, are heavier uh, and there's reasons for it. And one is because they can, one is because they have other regulations and, uh, and they can, they have more leeway on the materials that they can use. So, there are processes, manufacturing processes uh, to date that have involved us going into long autoclave um, cycles or long press cycles, oven cycles. That's all improving uh, now, and we can shorten those. And there's lots of great folks working on out-of-autoclave type procedures that will give us the allowables that that we need. But that's a you know, that's one category there where there's a big difference. The other place is scale, like you mentioned. And, you know, when you look at the complex parts of VTOL aircraft, the, the rotor hub, uh, they're less configured for that, that autonomous, you know, robot to put those pieces together. Uh, when you look at the electric VTOL, there's a lot more opportunities because you have line replaceable units in the form of the motors, in the form of the battery packs. And then if you combine those opportunities with the opportunities that are emerging in uh, out of autoclave composites, putting all three of those together, combining it with some of the, the automated procedures in automotive industry, you can you can Interesting. Get to what extent can we expect to have an overlap between an advanced air mobility production facility or final assembly facility versus the one that we've seen in automotive? You know, some would say you partner with an automotive OEM and your problem of manufacturing at scale just goes away. You know, check that box. Uh, but in reality, obviously, it's a it's a significant challenge to just repurpose an automotive production line and have EV tolls come out the other end instead. Help us understand the the magnitude of that problem, getting those two realities together. Well, I think the first the first part of the exercise that I always tried to go through was communicating to each other from both of those sides you just described. So I'll simplify a little bit, but the the aerospace message is we have you know much more rigorous requirements around the parts that we make here. Failure in our parts doesn't lead to pull over and everyone's okay. And you know when you say things like that, people kind of fundamentally understand it, painting that picture. But if you get deeper into what that really takes, 
And if you step into an aerospace manufacturing facility, you see longer, more quality driven processes, whether that's tempering metals in a certain way, grinding gears at lower velocities. So your whole throughput uh, store, you know, treating fastened joints and bonded joints in different ways and inspecting them in different ways. That all amounts to a longer time just to get the you know, regulatory components taken care of. Then if you look at some of the complexities in eVTOL, you, know, you can see just that that part's not going to go together by you know, having a robot do it. And then the automotive folks, they come at you with, and again, I'm simplifying Oh no, you know, a robot can handle anything and uh, we have heat treat processes and composite allowable requirements just like you do and and that, so so then then you're then you're at this junction in the middle and you start to shake loose uh, the truth and the balance of that. And I think that's the first exercise to do. Uh, I think another overlap, a great overlap besides automation is uh, digitalization. That, that's a place where we, we, both sides uh, currently use it, but can benefit from uh, a melding of the approach. You know, this, this notion from the, from the aerospace side that a digital twin is a really great thing to have for future maintenance operations. And I think, you know, on the automotive side, digitalization is the fact that you are automated. You know, you're letting computer software and, and robotics handle the actual construction of your vehicle. And so that's a great uh, overlap area. I think the, the, uh, the place that I talked about before, if we can take that, you know, millions of parts per year, uh, one machine doing one thing and blend that with the need, the lesser scale of thousands of parts per year on the EV tall side that maybe can be done by the same machine, even though they're in different categories. So, you know, a robotic arm that can weld a battery pack together, but then maybe the head switches and it can wind, a, you know, a motor for you. And uh, is this not possible today? Oh, I think it is. Yeah. It's just, I don't, I, we didn't, we weren't thinking about it that way. Mm -hmm. Digital engineering, when combined with uh, advanced manufacturing, how can this change the, the nature of production facilities, uh, tooling, and just general practices in aviation? So, meaning if we have 3D printing capability with predictable, certifiable quality, uh, a variety of materials, and we truly leverage this concept that you mentioned of, of digital twins and digital threads. How does that change the game, and how far are we from from those technologies being used in factories? Yeah, so um, I'm gonna I'll separate 3D printing. I'll come to come to both of those. We'll do the digital first, like you know, and and the, and th this is public now. The um, amount of digital engineering and and digital uh, manufacturing that happened building the V280 prototype. Um, and I, I saw it um, before, and then and then we we started to share it a little bit. Um, it was just an amazing throttle, uh, a, a, an amazing speed producer for us from from the engineering to the manufacturing, and then all the way out to the maintenance. If you have a digital visual system whereby your engineers, uh, your manufacturing technicians, and your maintainers are all looking at the same source of truth. They're all looking at it in a visual way that they can manipulate and, and change and test things on in the same environment. You all of a sudden 
by, just by virtue of the fact that all three of those head spaces, engineering, manufacturing, and maintenance are in the same place, you gain efficiencies automatically from that. Can you give us some examples on how that was used in the program and, and how much did it improve in terms of time to develop? Yeah. So, um, you know, a, a 2D, a classic 2D drawing that um, gets printed out at a relative scale and then laid out on a, on a manufacturing table is, is not as easy as you might think it is to interpret. You know, sometimes you can't see how the next assembly might come in. Sometimes you can't see if the next assembly might interfere. And then all the, so then suddenly you say, well, look, we can't just keep studying this piece of paper until it, it withers away to dust. We have to go and build something. And then when you take that build step and things don't work out, now you might have damaged something. You might have to take something apart. You might have to change one of the dimensions that you find. You can you can just see how that adds to the time. In, in contrast, if you have a visual 3D uh, digital um, assembly or sub-assembly, and all of those folks, the engineers, the technicians, and the maintainers are looking at it, you can see what the next assembly looks like. You can see where you have to put your tool, your hand. You can see that there's no interference given the three parts that you have on the table. And then you can kind of sequence the, the build and, and assembly of those parts together so that you don't have those misses. You don't have that moment where you say, I have to shave this off here or I damage this and I have to rebuild it again. Great. Or I don't know where this part goes and I put it together wrong and it and it has to be taken apart again. Uh, if I'm an entrepreneur in, in advanced mobility and speaking of digital engineering, where can I expect digital en- engineering and 3D printing to make a difference? Yeah, 3, 3D, 3D printing is tempting to kind of use as a, as a panacea. In my experience, you know, you have to, select particular parts and and until the allowables get to where they need to be those parts are generally secondary parts they have a certain complexity in their geometry that other manufacturing methodologies cannot make and then when you have those and that geometry is doing something for you from a performance standpoint or a maintainability standpoint or a repairability standpoint then you can take advantage of it if you just use 3d printing for the sake of using it you'll find that it won't produce at the rate you want and it may cost you more than you expected. Look for those complex geometries, those um, secondary um, uh, structures right now. And then the third one is that I'm really encouraged by, look to print some of your tools using 3D printing. That can really be a cost saver that um, a lot of people are starting to, to look into now. So you can do 3D printed tools. They're kind of real sloppy on the bottom, but that means you can do it real fast to, to build up the basic foundational structure. And then uh, you, you take your time on the, on the actual tooling surface. And that allows you to um, produce tools at a much better cost point and especially at, at a much better time. You know, long, you know, big metal tools, invar tools, they, they take a lot of time to, to manufacture and they, they, also, they also cost a lot. One of the questions that often comes up is aircraft certification, the length of time of aircraft certification. When do entrepreneurs need to start investing in certifying facilities? And should that be prioritized over investment in aircraft certification? How were the two connected? Answer to should it be prioritized over certification of the vehicle? No. The way that it should work 
and these are what we call design for manufacturing principles, your engineers, your design engineers and your manufacturing engineers should be embedded together right from the beginning of the program. And they should use design for manufacturing and design for cost principles to ensure that the design not only functions as a flight vehicle that obeys, you know, flight physics, mm-hmm. but it is producible using the methodologies that we know we need to use to get to the scales that we talked about earlier. So it's a concurrent effort and you know, you can't emphasize that more really uh, because design engineers can design anything. They can't necessarily design anything that's manufacturable at a reasonable cost at, and at the rates that are, are required by the ask of the business model for for advanced air mobility in particular. So when you're now now you mentioned it specifically for entrepreneurs. So I'm gonna I'm not gonna change that really, but I'm gonna say that the entrepreneur faces something different than the legacy OEM does here, and that is the legacy OEM has a manufacturing facility, has quality processes already published and operational, has manufacturing processes published and usable for their for their technicians. And so there would seem to be an order of things when you're talking about a legacy OEM, but it's mostly because they can take advantage of the fact that their quality system and their manufacturing process are already in place. So it's not a big step for them to get production certification. That doesn't mean they don't do concurrent design and manufacturing engineering exercises together. That's a different thing. But it does mean that they don't have to create or recreate quality and manufacturing process documents to get the production certification. An entrepreneur, and I'm assuming that means starting from scratch, needs to do both of those things. Can you help us put some figures around this? Let's say that I'm an entrepreneur and I want to scale up a production rate of, let's say, a thousand EV tolls. How much time and effort in terms of capital, people, timeline, what are we talking about? Yeah, I I mean, a greenfield manufacturing facility that can achieve that rate for for EV tolls and have the digitization and automation that we've been talking about is is going to run you somewhere between 700 million and a billion at greenfielding it out. It's a it's a big number. Now you can step into that uh, at different rates. So if you want to just do your initial run at 50 a year, 100 a year, you spend you know one amount, a portion of that, and then leave yourself room to expand go up to your 400, 500 a year, and then get to your thousands. But those are, those are greenfield numbers that, that I've looked at in the past. You know, I, and over, I, how, over how many years is that typically? Uh, that's, you know, it takes, it takes a couple of years to get, get a greenfield set up and 18 months to a couple of years to get it set up at a low rate. And then, you know, another, another year or two to add on to that, the scales that we need. And what are the biggest drivers of those numbers? Oh, it's capital. That's capital intensive in the beginning. You have to get your place. Although, you know, the good news is a a lot of um, localities, communities, they want, uh, you know, facilities like that in their in their communities because they create jobs and and technology, technological advancement. So you can get you probably can get some support facility wise, but you need to tool that up. You need to put in the all the 
environmental considerations, and uh, that that all that all costs a lot of money. If you greenfielded a vehicle, the proper manufacturing um, scale, and say operations, it's six hundred million to a billion for each of those components. So you're looking at you need two billion to three billion to get this done. And let's say you wanted to speed it up, you wanted to reduce the financial risk. What kind of a partner were you? Would you reach out to? Yeah, and I think that's why. So you see people reaching out to the automotive industry. So that's one uh, great place from your manufacturing side because they they have a facility and they have the big bones in in place to help you with automation and digitization. They already have a supply chain built up that you can tap in not all cases, but most. If you wanted to really supplement that story, you'd you'd find an aerospace partner too. And then they could they could sort of close that loop on the supply chain and the manufacturing side uh, for you. And then from a financial standpoint, you need to find people with patience. And um, I hope and I and I want all the the venture capital that's been involved to date in this emerging market to have the patience and continue to be there. But if I look back on some of their prior investments. They don't look like aviation investments. They they look like software type investments where the the turn times and the and the um, upfront capital are just nowhere near the numbers that you need in aerospace. But I'm encouraged though. I mean, look at Joby's at 1.8 billion right now, so they're they're right there. I think I heard they've got about a thousand people going, and uh, they're building their facilities, so they're right in the in the zone. Legacy VTOLs, they're going to be there. They just need to, you know, get their own internal investment uh, lined up for it. Some of the new players, you know, Hyundai is going to be there. They have a built-in, you know, automotive fact, uh, faction there, and and uh, they're building up their aerospace piece. So I think across the board, you know, the startups are doing well. Uh, those lead startups. Uh, that have that have gotten the SPAC money or really deep uh, private money. The legacy OEMs, although they're going a little slower, they feel like they can because of who they are. Uh, they they seem to be getting the money that they need and building and revamping the, the uh, internals that they already have, the foundation that they already have. And then these kind of um, hybrid players that have startup aerospace components yet uh, existing other uh, industri- industrial components, um, they're they're playing it right by doing the combination. I know, totally. I know people are worried about the SPACs and, and whatnot, but SPACs are great for aerospace because we need a lot of cash. We we never it's that that story's never changed, and so to see some creativity uh, there as well, some innovation there as well is really encouraging. If you fast forward five years and ten years, what does the industry look like in five years? I think we see a really nice mix of electrified general aviation and and commuter fixed wing applications. I'm really excited about that. And I think we can't ignore that. It's always, everybody loves the VTOL story because you can imagine it like a flying car, like an air taxi kind of thing. But I think there's a lot of great accomplishments going on right now in the fixed wing space. I look forward to seeing that and they probably lead um, at least at the general aviation size uh, size point. And then you start to see the VTOLs coming online. So that's the five year for me. 10 years, I think you see a really healthy VTOL market. It's not quite yet autonomous, but it's starting to serve major city areas and, and some other good logistics uh, missions that are out there. So I'm really encouraged uh, to see that. And, and I 
I also, this gives me an opportunity to go back to uh, the other theme that you were mentioning, Luca, this Model T moment. One thing I love about using that term is it reminds people that we are just at the beginning of this. So the, the, the designs that you see right now and the vehicles that you see right now, it might make you think about Blade Runner and Jetsons and Star Wars, but this is really, these are Model Ts relative to what's going to come in 10 or 20 or 50 years. Just like the Model T is something that you don't see anymore. You see your Teslas and your and um, and your modern vehicles today. We right. have to remember that because this this notion of okay. using the air as a mo- as a normal everyday mobility mechanism is is futuristic to us by default. But we haven't even started to see the future of it. So I'm excited for that part too. Scott, when you first heard that we were going to talk about the DC three moment or the Model T moment, what's the first thought to that came to your mind how would you briefly describe this for for the audience yeah it's it's, uh, you know it was transformation to me is that first word that came to mind and and we as an entrepreneur especially you need to study those historical moments and ask yourselves the question what made that a moment and we've pointed out in the in the dc3 it was operate operational costs and passenger comfort or, or product features is what I would call that. Uh, the Model T moment was we suddenly learned how to scale the the, the production of auto, automotives. And so you could bring them to the normal user. And I think that's what we have to learn about each of these moments. You could call the jet the emergence of the jet engine another moment. And I will say the analog to that in electrification is Aerospace goes as propulsion goes. When there's big changes in propulsion, you can expect a, a transformation or a revolution in, in aviation. And that's a that's a big part of this. What's the most common misconception or misunderstanding on this topic? <laughs> well, there's a few, but um, I think a lot of people compare eVTOLs to existing VTOLs like tilt rotors or even helicopters, and they're just not the same. And you don't need to penalize yourself by doing that exercise. One of the biggest things I had to do with my engineers uh, who were years, who had spent years producing high performance vehicles, I had to move them from the upper right-hand corner of performance to the lower left-hand corner of it and convince them that that was okay because there were (laughs) costs there that were better and missions there that were still usable by people. Uh, but we had to wrap our mind around. So I don't like when that gets uh, misconstrued. These vehicles are not, you know, uh, turbo shaft tilt rotors and helicopters, and nor should we ever expect them to be. The other misconception is that redundancy and elect- electrification makes it easier. That's just not true. The engineers who are working on distributed electric propulsion today are breaking barriers that were broken by engineers in other sectors of this this industry just the same way. I mean they're they're accomplishing great things. They're learning that it's not that doesn't make it easy. Um, the rigor of, of aerospace just won't let you make things be too easy. <laughs> it opened right. you know different channels have been opened and that's great. I say that to support young engineers. I also say it to support the safety case. You just can't let your guard down in aerospace. It's a hard problem and you need to use 
the best of your critical thinking, the best of your systems thinking to get to the to the right answer. What outcomes will be most improved as a result of the deployment of the EV tolls? You know, lower costs, higher revenue, faster transit times, lower environmental impact. Yeah, I think it, I think it's two out of that list. So it's lower costs, which means more people will have access to this revolutionary mobility mm-hmm. tool. And then the second one is faster transit to transform our lives where it means the most. You know, if you give time back to people, you can use it in all kinds of Hmm. creative ways that will benefit us as individuals, as mothers, fathers, friends of, you know, brothers, sisters, and our entire economy, because we're more productive with our time, the, the faster we get from one place to another. Mobility has always kind of been a lead indicator in productivity for for nations. So for a politician or a, you know a bureaucrat that's working in these in these systems in the in the governments or the, the communities, that's a that's a godsend, right? You know, you're giving something back to your constituents that they mm-hmm. will appreciate individually because it'll make their life more meaningful. And then you're giving back to the larger macro stories that they care about, like economics and and you know community and and productivity there's a revolution in mobility coming that utilizes the 3d space around us and it will change your life forever what advice would you give someone who wants to start a business in advanced air mobility that doesn't necessarily have the aerospace background well be be patient uh, push but obey the physics and then don't forget it's not just about the technology it's about the infrastructure it's about the airspace. It's about the digital space in between the vehicles and that infrastructure. It's about your community. Technology is so tempting to just you know dive into and never never leave. But that's only one piece of this great story, and we need to focus on all of those pieces together to make it make it work. Well said. Well said. Thank you so much, Scott, yeah. for uh, being on the show today. We. We enjoyed it. We hope you did too. Um, I did. We would love to have you back at some point. All right, let's do it. All right, that's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the Vertical Space Podcast. Reach out if there are topics that you would like us to discuss and goodbye until the next episode. Unless mentioned, this podcast is in no way endorsing or promoting any person and or company mentioned and all opinions within the podcast are solely that of the presenters. The vertical space makes no guarantees, warranty, or representation of any information given in this podcast. Any information given is for informational purposes and should be used at your own risk. This podcast is for general, educational, and entertainment purposes only.